My mom always said that um, it's always best to give bitter news with honey. And so if you know anything about Bob and the science behind his music, every song has a one-drop rhythm. And the one-drop rhythm is a simulation of a heartbeat. So... Doom, do doom, 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 do doom, doom, doom. That's photographer Ruddy Roy talking about reggae icon Bob Marley. So he wants to find your vibration, and it's the vibration that everybody lives with. It's the vibration of a heartbeat. And he uses that to push the needle in. And that needle is the sound of your heartbeat. And he gets you to the music. And once you're there, he can now give you the medicine. And those are the words. I mean, he never left that methodology. So why is a documentary photographer musing about reggae music? I'm Peter Gwynn, editor-at-large at National Geographic magazine, and you're listening to Overheard at National Geographic, a show where we eavesdrop on the wild conversations we have here at Nat Geo and follow them to the edges of our big, weird, beautiful world. This week, we sit down with photographer Ruddy Roy as he talks about growing up in Jamaica and how the songs of reggae musician Bob Marley prepared him for a journalism career and ultimately led him to the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic and the civil rights protests. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Can you take me back to Jamaica and your childhood? Like, what, what's your so, earliest memory of Jamaica? You know, I, in the 70s in Jamaica were tumultuous. It was, it, our country went through this idea of Mike and Manley versus Edward Siaga. And it was really the People's National Party versus the Jamaica Labour Party. Mm -hmm. And I remember as a kid going to school, watching people run out, chase each other with broomsticks, with with two by fours. Um, you'd hear on the news, people shooting at each other, different parties shooting at each other. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And out of all of that tyranny came music. Leroy Smart would sing Ballistic Affair. And it's, these are the songs I grew up on. Um, mm -hmm. I Need a Roof Over My Head. Yeah, The Mighty um, Diamonds. By Mighty Diamonds. Yeah. And then Rita Marley brought to the floor the idea of the, the, the woman's voice. And she sang Harambe. Again, peace. This idea of oneness. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I think in Jamaica, it was either the church songs or the, thong, the songs from these entertainers that really lifted us out of that tumultuous time. So tell me about your, uh, tell me about your parents. 
What were, what were they like? Both were from the country, like rural. So it would be comparable to saying they're from down south. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, they both, both their parents were farmers. But my mom grew up on a farm. Yeah. We went to the farm. It was one of the sweetest parts of the vacation. Mm-hmm. Because we didn't, though we didn't work the land, because, the, I mean, they thought that our, hand, our hands were too soft. <laughs> But we were allowed to go sit in the cane field. Like, they could never find me. Uh-huh, yeah. But my mom said all she would do is to look over in the cane field, and wherever she saw the bush doing this, <laughs> she knew it was she me because it. I was in there doing this and tearing the cane with my teeth. Yeah. And right. so it would shake the bush. <laughs> so she would know exactly where to find me. Um, my mom my mom got her her discipline from being... A, a, a girl who grew up on a farm. Mm. Um, she's one of the most hardworking people I know. Beautiful, witty, wise. She was one of the first women in Jamaica to run 10 seconds in 1968. Are you serious? Are you serious? Yeah, but she couldn't get to go to the World Cup because she got pregnant. Oh, my gosh. Wait a minute. She ran 10 seconds in the 100-yard dash? In the 100, yes. That is phenomenal. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jamaica is known for its sprinters. I mean, that, that's a, I guess that's a long tradition. I didn't realize. That's, that, it's in the food, man. It's, it's, it's how we train. It's... So hmm. my, father was, my father was quiet. He was, he was the first person that I thought about. When I, when, I would, when I started studying philosophy, he was the first person I thought about. And he always had stories. Every lesson that he had to teach, it was done through a story. Uh-huh. And I think more than anything else, that's where I got that from. But my love for art, I know, definitely came from my mom. She gave me books very early. She gave me poetry very early. Um, she gave me music around age nine or ten. Wow. At what point, Ruddy, did you start to pick the idea that, you know, you wanted to get into photography. When did you sort of pick up a camera? I got an assignment to photograph people who are living on the defunct train line in Montego Bay. So the train, the train that used to run from Kingston to Montego Bay had stopped running. And it had stopped running for such a long time that people were now living on the train line. They, they, they took over the train houses. They were living close to the train because it was good property. <laughs> and the newspaper said, why don't you go up there and do a story on a family that's now living? So, because if the train comes back, these families would have to move. <laughs> um, so I went and I did it. And I walked 121 miles from Montego Bay to Kingston, finished the project. Wow, wow. And used those images to get a job at the Associated Press in New York. Oh my goodness. And that was the, that's the beginning of that, this journey. So walking from your hometown to the capital in Jamaica, taking yes. pictures all the way, is what led you to your professional career, really, in a way. Yes. So, Ruddy, tell me about your first National Geographic assignment. I mean, I'm, yeah, you know, we're we're skipping big chunks here, but tell me about the first, you know, call you got from Geographic and what what was that the assignment? The first, 
The first assignment I got was to photograph the the people or the individuals who were donating their artifacts to the Smithsonian African American Museum in Washington DC. Um for me it was a huge deal because I was photographing people who have lived with the with Nat Turner's Bible. They have lived with their ancestors free paper. Yeah. They had lived with the the clothes that uh, and the belongings of a, a James Baldwin. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. and for me finally they were going to be put in a space where they could be shared in the world. Mm. I often I was I was often quoted as saying that I would never go to anybody else's museum until I had one. Mm-hmm. And and so finally I get to like embrace a history that I thought that was lacking. It was it was it was it was a, it was beautiful to me. It was beautiful to travel around the country photographing Nat Turner's great 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 grandson and seeing a history that is not in our history books. It's not told anywhere. Mm. Um, photographing a sign that says "Blacked Signpost" and knowing that this signpost was was erected to 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 instill fear in any other people of African descent who were who was working in in Virginia for free from having another insurrection, and that's why that sign was there. It said blackhead signpost still in Virginia. Wow. Um, and so the, the every story that I've done for, for geographic, everyone, I followed that up with the race issue, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which made me made me sit at Morehouse University and, and look at the next generation of of, of our black leaders um, and see the pros and cons. Of, of what it means to, to grow up in a country that does not feed you its history. I've learned, I've learned more from these than I think I've been able to like put into these pictures. Interesting, interesting. Um, these are actually the histories or the history that I've brought back to my, to my sons to the, to, the, to the effect that when my son was given this, this assignment to, to write on a civil rights leader, Mm-hmm. He said to his teacher that he'd prefer to write about his father because that's where he gets his history from. Wow. That's so these stories powerful. have been more than just stories for me. Yeah. They, they have been pages, pages in a history that has not been written yet because it's not a part of our curriculum mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. not in our history books. Yeah. So you mentioned you have two sons. Uh, it's interesting. I think your son, you have a son who's 12, just turned 12, I guess, this summer, right? Right. I have two daughters, a 12-year-old and a, and a 14-year-old. And so I kind of know in terms of age right. what that's like. But I can only imagine, well, I know, you know, like talking to my children about this moment that we're all living through. But as the father of black children, how do you, how are you talking to them about all of this? And how are you talking about what you do with your work? Well, it's, 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 it's beautiful to see, especially this summer, my son, the 15 year old, blossom into the kind of photographer that it sounds narcissistic for me to say, but it feels like me. Mm-hmm. 
which means that he can only push off mm -hmm. from a good space. Mm -hmm. I watched him photograph some kids at, at the park for his, uh, his photography assignment. And I made sure that I was like away. Like, mm -hmm. And I could hear him talk and ask questions and move the person emotionally huh. to get the images that he wanted. Wow. And I was just like, I felt good. Because I'm always like, and this might sound morbid, I always think about leaving, like dying. Like I always think uh, if I left him now, yeah. would he be okay? Right. And so, and so hearing him move into this place that I'm like, yes, like, mm. yes. Like if I was unfortunately to leave right yeah. now, right. I kind of know his, how his vision would mature. Yeah, right. Bar any corruption, any anything because i've been very good about not allowing capitalism to corrupt the way i choose images or mm -hmm. shoot display mm -hmm. or tell stories um but we sit down and we talk about weekly events i mean we don't do it every day mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but we did george floyd because i was out um in houston um, and what did, what did you say to them and, and how did they respond? Actually, I started off by saying to them that when I was, I was allowed to go into the church and photograph George Floyd, I did not photograph him for 12 minutes. Like people were behind me going, dude, let's go, yeah, holding right. up the line. But for me, it was important to tell George's body, thanks. Thanks for his life. Thanks for the, the opportunities that we're all going to get mm -hmm. because of his death. Thanks for, thanks for what is going to shift the narrative that's going to be moved because of his death. And it was mm -hmm. important to do that. And I wanted them to understand that moment. Mm -hmm. That you're not going to get um, an Angela Davis on the front of the, was it? Vanity Fair mm -hmm, mm -hmm. just because a Brianna Taylor does not go on the front of a magazine just because you know we're getting all of this this influx of of, of interest and attention mm -hmm. is coming from a, all these names all these hashtags mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so it was important for me to let him understand what that death means for us, that it's not just he's dead and gone and here, here's another dead hash person that's not going to be a hashtag, that his death is going to allow us new life, mm -hmm. new, a new voice, mm -hmm. a new push, and that our job is to be, to be a part of this struggle and a part of this fight in a very positive way. Mm -hmm. um, they can't go anywhere. They understand what that is. I do not allow them to ride around the block in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. They cannot go take their bikes and go outside without me or their mom watching them. Mm -hmm. That's their reality. You know, you've recently been uh, named as a new, as one of the National Geographic storytellers. 
and your project is titled "When Living Is a Protest." Yes. Can you t- explain kind of what your what you're thinking, what's your plan for that project? It's it's to go somewhere deeper than everyday life. I mean, I could easily say over the past 400 years, our entire living has been one out of protest. Um, I'd, I'd give you an imagine. I'd give you something to imagine. Just imagine, for an instance, watching your entire watching as a family your father being raped in front of you and you cannot move. Imagine your mom being raped. You cannot move. If you move, you're going to be killed. Imagine your uncle, your brother, your father, maybe a neighbor being hung, being whipped, cannot move. Mm. Uh, Because if you move, you're going to be killed. No, imagine you holding that. And imagine seeing this every day of your life for as long as you're alive. And then you're free. But that pain is passed down in your DNA on a very cellular level. Mm. And imagine that it hasn't stopped. Imagine that they still kill. Imagine that through redlining and Jim Crow, they're still lynching there's still places that you can't live, own property. Mm. You can go to a water fountain. You can ride in the front of a bus. Imagine that there, there, there's variations, but there is still subjugation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And imagine you still pass that on. Mm. Imagine the civil rights movement come and your leaders get killed. And imagine then still you pass that on. And we come to 2020 and then imagine the trauma that folks have had to live with for 400 years. Mm. And so for me, those images or these images are about a, a quote that Albert Camus said. Uh, and, and I know I'm going to butcher that quote. He said, when a people have suffered, they develop a taste for the misfortune. Mm. I think that's it. When a people have suffered, they develop a taste for the misfortune. And it is that quote that drives the work. <laughs> well, Ruddy, I'd love to end on a hopeful note. Um, and maybe that's the future. And specifically, you know, I, I, in your Instagram posts with your sons, it seems like there's a lot of hope there. I mean, you've already talked a little bit about that. But I remember one of the posts you talked about, Yoshi, I can't, is he the younger or the older son? He's the younger. The younger. I think you said, Yoshi carries my heart and your older son carries your spear. It's the other way around. Oh, it's the other way. Sorry. Okay, Yoshi, Yoshi carries the spear. The spear. Moses, my heart. If you were going to paint the tableau of the future, you would hope to see Yoshi and Moses have the country they would live in, the place we would be as a society. Can you can you sort of, you know, paint that picture? What that would look like? For me, for me, there's there's a very it's a very nuanced and complex scenario 
to even, in my unqualified knowledge, try to even broach. But I'll say this. I think the lack of respect that African-Americans get is because we're not unified and we don't have the economic power and resources that would allow other people outside of our group to look at us and go. And it comes from the fact that nobody knows our achievements because our achievements are integrated into the larger narrative. That said, hip-hop came out of this idea that this was our voice, our culture, and we sold it out of the back of cars. I think that was the one intersection where the rest of the world looked at African-Americans and was like, yo, we, we need to get a piece of that. <laughs> I think we can go back to that. And I think... I think it ha we have to live in a world where I, I will buy, I will go out and support blackness until we can sit at the table and, and garner respect. Until, until my choice to go to G-Star and buy a pair of jeans is my choice and not the only choice I have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And until we, we get to that space, will always be here. Like, will always be... I, I, somebody told me t today that we're finally going to get to a space where, where things are legislated. And I think that's the wrong approach hmm. because it, it, it's now based on somebody else giving us something. Mm -hmm. We just need to get into our own communities and start farming, building our masonry, electrical work, just start doing for ourselves, supporting. And then find that we have something to bring to the table, that we can know, mm -hmm. do this. We can exchange. I think, I think if I, and, and which is why I keep telling, telling my boys that they have to, 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 to be about loving, loving who they are, loving their culture, mm -hmm. not to the, I mean, I, I, I hope when, 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 I, when people hear me say this, it's not saying that, I don't love white culture or I don't love brown culture just for political the political sense because I hate that word brown. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or my sons have the distinction of having a mom who is half Chinese. Mm. Um, and so they, they do adopt parts of the Chinese culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And their father is Jamaican, so they do adopt a lot of the Jamaican culture mm -hmm. and they are Americans. And so they live mm -hmm. in an American culture. Mm -hmm. And way before people were talking about girls and the fact that you can't say you hit like a girl, I was having a conversation with them at, them at five and, and two or <laughs> six and mm -hmm. three. Like mm -hmm. they, they couldn't, I was, I said, girls can beat you. They run faster than you. Your your grandmother can outrun you. Yes, <laughs> still. So 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 I've I've always tried to give them this very holistic way of 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 being in the world. Yeah. But as they're doing that, they have to start loving theirs mm -hmm. and appreciating theirs, mm -hmm. and not believe that outside of theirs is better than theirs. Yeah. Right. 
And we have to get to that space. We have to get to the space where we, we truly love our culture enough to be able to, to live in it mm-hmm. before we give it up. I, I'll, I'll say this on the record. Integration really hurt the black community. Hurt it. And, and it's, it's, it's in our history books that the first, we call that word, the, the, the people who were against it, um, were teachers. Because they said as soon as these black kids were able to go to white schools, their history would no longer be taught. Mm. And so these kids are brought up without their history. So they don't know how they, what their achievements were. Mm. The one thing about Jamaica that I can tell you, we went to school because we loved hearing about Nani, Sam Sharp, Marcus Garvey, Paul Bogle, mm-hmm. um, Nani of the Maroons. George Washington, George William Garden. We love, um, you see, oh, the American and the, the, the Jamaican just got mixed up. Um, <laughs> but we loved hearing yeah. about our history. That is the thing, the one thing that's lacking, I think, in our curriculum, that these kids are, are brought up to hear about the history that they have no connection to. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time, man. This has been a fascinating conversation and moving, and I feel like you've given me a gift now that I, <laughs> I have to, I have the responsibility to make sure that it is, you know, I do justice to it. So I want to thank you, and I really look forward to meeting you in person someday. Hopefully, we'll be back in someday and have another photo seminar. You'll be at, at the office and and showing a photo show or something, and we get to meet in person. That would be wonderful, brother. Yeah, yeah, ready. Well, thanks again. Thank, thank you so much. To see some of Ruddy Roy's National Geographic assignments, including his coverage of the opening of the National Museum of African American History and Culture, his portraits from historically black colleges and universities, as well as his most recent photographs depicting the impact of COVID-19 on people of color and the Black Lives Matter protests, check out the links in our show notes. They're right there in your podcast app. You can also find his photographs on our Instagram account, at NatGeo. Overheard at National Geographic is produced by Brian Gutierrez, Jacob Pinter, and Laura Sim. Our senior editor is Eli Chen, Executive producer of audio is Devar Ardalan, who also produced this episode. Our fact checker is Michelle Harris. Hans Dale Sue composed our theme music and engineers our episodes. This podcast is a production of National Geographic Partners. Whitney Johnson is the director of visuals and immersive experiences. Susan Goldberg is National Geographic's editorial director. And I'm your host, Peter Gwynn. Thanks for listening, and see you all next time.